Welcome to Talking Robots, the podcast with an inside view on the science, technology, and business of intelligent robotics. Hi, I'm Sabine Howard from the Laboratory of Intelligent Systems at the EPFL in Lausanne, Switzerland. In this interview, we talk to Kerstin Doutenhan, who is professor at the University of Hertfordshire in the UK. With a focus on helping others, she has been developing therapy robots capable of playfully pushing autistic children towards everyday human-human interactions. Hi, Kerstin. Welcome to Talking Robots. Hello. You're at the head of the Aurora Project, which is a long-term project aimed at creating robots capable of interacting with autistic children. First of all, what is autism? Um, autism is a lifelong developmental disorder. And one of the key characteristics of people with autism is that they have uh, problems in social interaction and communication. So for a person with autism, it's very, very difficult to communicate, to interact with others, to understand facial expressions, to understand gestures, language, body language, for example. What is maybe interesting to note is that autism is a, is a spectrum disorder. So what it means is that on the lower functioning end, you may find uh, people who are very withdrawn, who might not use any language at all, who are not able to live on their own. Uh, on the other hand of the spectrum, you may find uh, very able uh, people. Uh, they might even go on to study at university. You know, they are able to interact Uh, and communicate, but uh, clear, but still with very clear differences to other people. In the Aurora project, how did you try to help these children using robots? Our starting point was to uh, to see that children with autism enjoy as much interacting with the robot as any other children. I mean, uh, uh, everyone who has ever been to a robot demonstration, say at a museum, at an exhibition, uh, you will see that you always find, you know, big crowds of children around robots. You know, children are just fascinated by if if they see something mechanical that also moves or that might even do certain behaviors on its on its own, they're really fascinated by it. And we found something similar in the Aurora project. Um, when we started this work uh, in 1997, there was only very little uh, previous research in that area. Uh, in fact, you know, one of the works that we found uh, had been done uh, uh, um, several you know, years before in Edinburgh with a remote-controlled robot. So we said, well, what would happen if we have an autonomous robot? So if, if you bring this autonomous robot to a school and uh, you introduce children with autism to the robot and you just tell them, oh, you can, you can play with them. And so this was our starting point, and it means it was completely open. We didn't know at all what would happen. You know, we had absolutely no concrete hypotheses or questions that we wanted to study. We were just curious what would happen. Would children be interested in the robots? And what we found is that they are very, very interested in the robot. Um, so they enjoy interacting with the robot. They have absolutely no fear or, you know, caution in approaching the robot or even touching the robot and playing with it. And we also saw many signs of enjoyment. They were smiling, you know, they were very keen also in coming back to the sessions when we went there several times. And so this was a very promising starting point. And this gave us enough confidence to say, okay, let us make this into a real research project where we investigate certain characteristics 
of behaviors that children with autism have difficulties with, like joint attention, like imitation, for example. And uh, we then designed experiments or trials, as we call them. It is not experiments in the classical uh, scientific sense uh, that you can control, you know, carefully control all of the condition. It is more a playful, uh, uh, yeah, therapeutic or educational context, so very open-ended in this sense. But still, we were focusing on very particular aspects of uh, social interaction, as I said, imitation or joint attention. And uh, we then uh, did certain trials, including long-term trials with the children. So this is basically how it started. Can you maybe present a scenario with a robot and an autistic child working on these behaviors you just presented, joint attention, imitation? Um, for example, what we uh, did um, in our work with a, a humanoid doll robot called Robota, developed at uh, EPFL by Ort Biard, um, we used this robot for a few years in our project. And the nice thing about the robot is that it's able to uh, move its arms, move its legs. And um, we used it for imitation scenarios where um, children could interact with the robot by, you know, similarly moving the arms, moving the legs in order to engage in turn-taking with the robot. So, for example, when the child first came into the room, and if, if it was the first time that the child saw the robot, then probably the child was a little bit cautious, so just stood there and watched, and then the robot started moving. And then after a while, the child might get more, more interested, it might approach the robot, and then um, after several sessions, uh, what we also found is that we can encourage the children then to imitate the robot, and what is more important, the child also then proactively in initiated the interaction. So even when the robot then stopped and wasn't moving for a little while, then the, the child sudden, suddenly started to produce certain movements, waited for the robot to respond, and if the robot wasn't able to respond because it couldn't simply do that movement, then that we saw that the children then even were creative and then realizing, oh, the robot is not able to show this behavior. Now maybe I will initiate another behavior. So what we what we saw is something that uh, that is called turn taking, and it's a key ingredient in any kind of human human interaction and communication. Imagine you were talking to somebody, to a friend, for example, you're having a conversation, and uh, imagine you wouldn't know how to take turns. So what would happen? Well, either one of you would be talking all the time. Uh, and you wouldn't really have a dialogue or conversation, or you would need some external clock that says, okay, now it's your turn, now it's your turn, now it's your turn. But all of this doesn't happen. What human beings are very, very good at, and even you know, newborn babies uh, are already able to take turns with the environment by intuitively knowing what it means to interact, what it means to communicate in the sense of taking turns. So taking turns and giving turns so that two people together get engaged in an interaction. This is something that for um, a child with autism, for example, can be difficult. So turn-taking is, for example, one of the things that in, in schools, in special needs schools, they are teaching uh, the children how to take turns in games when they play with other children. Do you think it is easier for an autistic child to learn this turn-taking with a robot uh, than with a human? The way we view our robots is not as replacements of people. 
Um, clearly, it is not our intention to replace human beings by robots. There wouldn't, I can't see any scientific point in that. But the benefit of using a robot is that you can simplify. If a child with autism interacts with a person, a human being, then this person and the communication and interaction that you have with that person is very, very complex. You have a variety of facial expressions. You have, uh, you know, movements of the head, of the whole body, posture. You have um, language, language that needs to be interpreted. Um, for example, the tone of voice is very, very important. Uh, you have also rules of politeness. You know, you need to conform also to certain norms. Like, what do you do if you meet somebody for the first time? Like, for example, you get engaged in a greeting, and so on and so on. Human-human interaction is full of these these rules and cues, and we are required to interpret them in a uh, in a social way in order to find out, okay, what is the intention of that person? What does the person want to say? Um, or what does the person mean when she asks a question? Like, for example, if... If I met you and you asked me, Kerstin, do you know what the time is? Then I could answer yes, or I could answer no, or I could answer, oh yes, it's 3.13. And um, socially acceptable is the last answer. <laughs> Namely, uh, if you ask somebody, do you know what the time is, what you don't mean is the literal meaning. This is what a person with autism would focus on. It's the literal meaning of the of the sentence, do you know what the time is? Um, but that's, of course, not what people mean. So human language and generally human interaction and communication is full of these, um, um, of these instances where you use metaphors or you need to interpret what you see, you need to interpret what you hear. And you're doing it usually based on some uh, knowledge that you have about, you know, other people having goals, having intentions, having motivations, and you are interpreting their behavior in light of these goals, motivations, intentions, emotions, and so on. But this is very, very difficult for a person uh, with autism. And robots, on the other hand, um, are very, very simple. Even very advanced humanoids that we have these days, um, if you look at their faces, if you look at their movements, they are not as subtle, they are not as complex as human behavior and human appearance. So you can, you can use a robot to slowly um, get a child interested in interaction and communication and turn-taking, for example, or joint attention. And then you can uh, increasingly then use more complex behavior or change the appearance of the robot. But first you need to be able to connect to the child to get the child interested in an interaction, as opposed to the child just uh, coming into a room, uh, he sees another person, he has no interest, he goes away. What you have with a, with a robot is that, that the child is faced with a maybe humanoid form, but very, very simple. It's a simplified version of a humanoid form. And um, that has proved to be extremely su successful, uh, and children with autism respond very well to the simplification uh, of a human-like shape. After having learned turn-taking with Robota, were they able to go out and interact with humans in the same way? Well, trying to find out in what way the children can uh, generalize what they learn in the classroom to outside the classroom is uh, very, very difficult. 
um, one of the general problems in therapy, not only robot-assisted therapy, but therapy in general, is how do you know that an effect that you observe um, is due to the particular intervention, like using a robot in our case, or due to other events that may have happened outside the school or just the normal development of the child. Um, and so, I mean, we need to be very careful with the interpretation of our results. I mean, we have been publishing a lot uh, on the results, presenting them as case studies that show, um, uh, you know, how children uh, uh, can be taught imitation, how they are actually able to use joint attention in interacting with another person and the robot. But um, it's very difficult um, to claim um, you know, that the children were able to immediately translate this to a context outside outside the classroom. That would have to be done in a more clinical study, um, so it would go beyond uh, the work that we are doing. I mean, I'm based in a school of computer science, and my group consists of uh, engineers, computer scientists, as well as psychologists. Uh, but clearly, we are not uh, we are not doing therapy. We are not doing uh, medical sciences. We are developing the technology. We are developing scenarios that can support such interactions, and then we do trials in which we show a proof of concept of how this could be used. Before you spoke of the humanoid robots, do you need to have a humanoid robot for these type of uh, learning tasks, or can you have other types of robots? What we found is that different types of robots um, are suitable for uh, different children according to their preferences, according to their abilities. For example, um, for, um, for some of our children on the more low-functioning end, we had very successful interactions in terms of how engaged the children were um, when we used a very simple mobile robot. So this was a robot uh, um, label one produced by uh, a Canadian company called um, Applied AI Systems. Uh, Takashi Gumi actually donated uh, uh, this robot to us, and we have been using it uh, for many years. So a very simple robot that can move around on the floor that has infrared sensors and a heat sensor. It can, uh, via the heat sensors, find children. It can then approach them. It can, via the infrared sensors, avoid them. And then it can play little games with them, like chasing, following, turn-taking, and so on. And what we found is that for children um, on the more lower-functioning end of the spectrum, so who are generally quite withdrawn, that this very, very simple robot um, could really help them uh, in the sense of, uh, you know, getting them uh, uh, out of the state of withdrawnness, at least during the session in the school, and engaging them in some, uh, uh, you know, very nice, playful interaction. Now, other children, uh, uh, children who also have more abilities, um, where you could, for example, try to teach them uh, imitation of gestures, for these cases, of course, you need a robot that has some kind of humanoid shape. Uh, if you want to teach a child how to imitate arm movements, then you need a robot that has arms, <laughs> if you see what I mean. So um, there is a correspondence between the, the robot designs that you choose and the type of behaviors that you may be able to teach or to explore when children interact with it. And in our very latest studies, um, we have used a humanoid that we developed in our lab. It's a child-sized uh, humanoid robot called Casper. Casper also has facial expressions. Uh, it can also turn the head. It can, like Robota, also turn the arms, but um, it can also 
you know, produce different kinds of gestures like waving, for example, or you can play a peekaboo game with Casper. So we have, in a way, over the past 11 years, we have investigated different designs, a very simple mobile robot, um, a humanoid doll, robota, and now Casper. But we are not claiming that, you know, only the latest robot, Casper, is more suitable for children. It really depends on what groups of children you are you are working with. You need to adapt the type of robot that you have to the interests and the capabilities of the children. And if you have uh, children who are um, at the more higher functioning end of the spectrum, they already have some interaction and communication skills. For them, a very simple mobile robot might not be that interesting. So you need to uh, uh, give them more challenges, so to speak. Challenge them with having a robot that can also produce more complex gestures and facial expressions, for example. So it's very important that in whatever study we are doing, we are starting with the children, with what we know about them from the schools, from the teachers, from the carers, and then we design trials, we design scenarios, um, and we design certain objectives of these trials uh, where we try to use the robot in a way um, that is therapeutically or educationally beneficial for the children. So we cannot simply, you know, do the same thing for all the children and hope that it has any benefit. Um, in our experience, we need to have a very individualized approach, starting with the individual child, then selecting a particular robot, selecting certain behaviors of the robot, uh, and then doing the trials hoping uh, that you uh, um, you know that the interaction capabilities of the children develop during these trials with all these robots what are the challenges in designing efficient human robot interactions the challenges uh, from the robotics point of view um, well there are many um, one of the problems that we have um, with children with autism is that because of the nature of uh, uh, autism, it's very important for them that the robot is very predictable. Now, if you have a fully autonomous robot, say a robot that is recognizing a child's gestures or a child's movements in an unconstrained scenario, so I should probably mention uh, um, that our scenarios are unconstrained in the sense that the children can literally do what they want in the trials. We do not instruct them to sit at a table. We do not instruct them to face the robot. We just bring them into the room with the robot. Usually the children also like to run around quite a lot, you know, like to have a lot of physical activities. And uh, part of these activities is also playing with the robot. So imagine from a robotics point of view, um, you would need to develop a sensor system that with 100% reliability is able to detect even very subtle movements of the children. Um, this is, given the state of the art, not possible. Uh, you might have some good recognition rates, but they will also depend on the uh, conditions, uh, on the lighting conditions, for example, if you use vision. Um, and clearly, if you have an unconstrained scenario where the child just moves around a big room with possibly also other children in that room, this is a big, big challenge. So we are trying to address this in the way that we do use some autonomous behaviors, but we also use what is called a Wizard of Oz methodology, which means that an experimenter uh, hidden from the children is uh, remotely controlling the robot. 
uh, in the sense of triggering certain types of behaviors. So we are exploiting the very, very good perceptual system of a human being, uh, and we are combining it with the abilities of the robot. But uh, this would be in the future, uh, it is one of our big challenges to put more and more autonomy in the robot. But uh, as I said, as far as the perceptual abilities are concerned, how can the robot perceive what the child is doing, uh, whether the child is interested in interacting uh, with the robot, etc.? This is still a very, very big challenge. If you had to summarize results from your work with autistic children, what would you say? Um, well... When I summarize the results, um, I think we have found some uh, very good evidence that children respond to a mobile robot or generally a robot differently to a non-robotic toy. We had some uh, comparative study in that field. We also found children are generally very, very comfortable with the robot. They enjoy playing with it. They can, in interaction with the children, in interaction with the robot, sorry, the children can learn uh, imitative behavior They can use the robot in order to demonstrate their abilities to uh, show joint attention. And more importantly, that's part of our more recent work, also as part of a, a European project called iWOMAC. We uh, put emphasis at the moment on this mediation aspect, where the robot is used as a social mediator in the sense of um, not only just one child interacting with the robot, but the child interacting with the robot in the presence of another child or an adult, or somebody else who is interacting with that same robot. So you have a scenario with just one robot, but at least two children. And um, what we create are scenarios that encourage the communication and interaction between the children. And we have found some, um, some very good indication in our trials uh, um, that this can happen, but of course this needs to be investigated further in future, but at the moment uh, we have some at least anecdotal evidence that uh, such, in particular, the humanoid robot Casper that we've used recently can serve as a social mediator uh, that and may help children uh, to uh, yeah, form some kind of relationship with each other. Can you maybe give us an anecdote on how this mediation would work? Uh, for example, uh, Dr. Ben Robbins, who is the main investigator in our trials uh, with children with autism and robots, uh, he once went to a school where uh, he had a pair of uh, uh, children with autism uh, interacting with a robot. And um, it, it took a while, but um, he, he saw that over time um, the children interacted with each other and uh, together engaged in a game with the robot. Um, what Ben did is he told the two boys that uh, the robot would only move if both of them show certain movements simultaneously, like raising the arm, for example, or waving. And this game context uh, was enough for the children to get the idea that if they want the robot to do anything, then they have to collaborate. And collaboration is something that's very, very difficult for a child with autism. And as part of this learning process of collaboration, which they then could do successfully, one boy then also put, uh, put the arm on the shoulder of the other boy. So they touched each other in a way which is more common to how Uh, you know, other children in a playground would sometimes touch each other, hug each other, or put, you know, the arm on the shoulder of another child. And um, when Ben then came to the school, 
um, uh, at a later time, uh, one of the teachers in the school told him that in one of the recent classes, physical exercise classes, that one of the boys had again put his arm around the shoulder or on the shoulder of the other boy, something he would previously never have done. So again, these are these are anecdotes. So these are certain examples that uh, show some promise in the sense of the children using what they've learned uh, with the robot also to situations outside the class. But again, uh, it would require some more uh, substantial. Um, also clinical studies in order to provide solid evidence that we can really help the children to form relationships. But so far, the, uh, the evidence that we have uh, just shows that there is a big potential in using the robots. What has been your motivation in creating therapy robots? Um, the reason why I'm interested in autism goes back to when I was a student, so a long time now. And um, I've, been, I've become fascinated by thinking about how do people communicate, how do they interact, what type of intelligence, social intelligence does it require, and to what extent can you understand this from a robotics or computer perspective. Now, autism is a, is a very interesting area because what you have are people who have a very specific impairment in communication and interaction. And um, so this made, I mean, at the same time, around that time, I became interested in robotics. And uh, I was also reading about the benefit of computers for people with autism. And so in my mind, I made the connections, well, if computers are beneficial for uh, children with autism, then why not robots? Robots have the additional uh, very important perspective that they are embodied, you know, and situated in a particular context. So a computer, communication via a computer is with a keyboard or a touchscreen. So a very, very limited channel of communication. Communication with a robot or interaction can be much richer. Um, even when it's only nonverbal, you can you can have touch, you can have approach, you can have avoidance. The children can go around the robot and so on. So this is how I slowly developed the idea. Well, wouldn't it be very interesting to study how children with autism respond to a robot, given that they may just enjoy uh, interacting with a computer on wheels, so to speak, uh, in the sense of a mobile robot, but as well. Uh, exploiting the fact that you can program a robot. Um, so this is what makes robots special as opposed to other non-robotic toys that from a therapeutic point of view, or educational point of view, you can modify the behavior, you can adapt it to what um, uh, uh, what the child is doing. That's something that uh, my PhD student, Dorothée Francois, is studying at the moment. She has developed algorithms that can uh, detect different types of touch when children with autism play with an eyeball robot. And um, here the motivation is that if the robot, for example, detects that the child interacts with the robot very forcefully, that the robot can exhibit certain cues um, so that the child might be encouraged to maybe play in a different way. So the ultimate aim here is to um, arrive at an intermediate uh, therapeutically uh, suitable level of interaction, not too strong, not too weak, uh, not too frequent, uh, and so on. 
So this is again one of one area where, from a computational, from a robotics point of view, um, there's a lot of potential in uh, thinking or de developing algorithms for adaptation and learning, which would allow the robot uh, to simply adapt better to what the child is doing. Do you think that in the future we can imagine having therapy robots such as Robota or Casper in all special needs schools across the world? Um, I think the area of robot-assistive uh, therapy is a growing area, and you have recently seen many other groups in the world uh, uh, doing related work, which is really, really great, great to see, and we will together advance knowledge uh, in that area. Um, so far, there is no robot available uh, commercially uh, on the market, um, so whether any particular robot uh, will be marketed or not, this will depend on a lot of other constraints. Uh, we as researchers, we can only show what is possible, but then of course it is up to um, others uh, to take this up and, uh, uh, you know, probably to commercialize uh, any of these robots, like our Casper, for example. And 20 years from now, in which field will robotics have had the biggest impact on our lives? It's at the moment dif very difficult to say where the biggest impact will be on our lives. Um, although it's not my area of interest, but uh, I think in entertainment there's just a very big potential. People just like to play. They just like to have gadgets. So I will really imagine a lot of these different applications. I would personally hope that the biggest impact will be in the sector of healthcare and uh, robot-assisted therapy, um, you know, help for elderly people, help for people with special needs, where robots could make a difference, not in order to replace people, but in order to provide assistance that otherwise wouldn't be possible. So these are areas I would hope uh, robotics will have uh, a big impact. But uh, as I said, it might uh, turn out to be completely different. Thanks, Gastine, for being here with us on Talking Robots. It was a pleasure. Thank you. This concludes this episode of Talking Robots with Gerstin Dautenhan on therapy robots for autistic children. Thanks for listening. Hope to see you in two weeks. Talking Robots, the inside view on robotics. For more information on past and upcoming podcasts, visit our website at lis.epfl.ch. <laughs>